and welcome back to the Know It All podcast. I am your host, Riley Sue, and I am so excited to be joining you for another installment in our pursuit to know a little bit about everything. Last week, we talked about pride celebrations around the world, and I've been enjoying all the things you guys have told me about. I've got some TikToks from Disneyland's Pride Night that I need to post, Uh, but this week is our season finale, so I thought it would be best to take us back to where it all began with the pod people doing wildly out-of-pocket shit in medieval France. Of course, I'm referencing our first episode, which was the Dancing Plague of 1518 that took place in Strasbourg. And today we're going to cover the Sao of Falaise, which if you don't know the story of off the top of your head, then you're in for a somewhat treat, I guess I could call it. But basically, we're going to talk about Falaise and other medieval animal trials, though I would not be able to cover them all. There are quite a few. But we're also going to talk a bit about what the animal trials from the past can teach us and how we in the modern age are more similar to the people of the past than we may originally think. So for the last time this season, let's take it all the way to the tiniest details in the beginnings of this area. You gotta know where you started to figure out where you went wrong, right? So like I said, today we're going to find ourselves in Falaise, France, which is situated along the Anti River in the Normandy region of northwest France. Falaise in French means cliff, and the town bears such a dramatic name due to the Chateau de Falaise, which is literally a 12th century castle built on a cliff near the center of town. But long before the castle, and long before the events that we're going to discuss today, Falaise was inhabited by people. I'm talking since prehistoric times. But most of those people were nomadic, living here, there, everywhere, north, south, every direction around Falaise, and having a more agrarian lifestyle. It's been since around the beginning of the Gallo-Roman era that this area has been consistently inhabited, and because of this, there's a lot of history that you can talk about when it comes to Falaise. It was passed around basically nonstop between the Normans, Franks, Romans, Gauls, Celts, Scandinavian, and Germanic tribes, basically you name it. But once the struggle of nationalities passing around control of the area settled, and the Norman Dukes took control, things start to get a little bit chiller. Of course, I mean that in the most relaxed sense that I could for the Middle Ages. Falaise is still, of course, the birthplace of William the Conqueror, and it was here at the Chateau that William I, King of Scots, was forced to sign the Treaty of Falaise and grant England control of Scotland in 1174. And then later, during World War II, it was the site of what's called the Falaise Pocket, and Allied troops destroyed two German armies here. But in January of 1386, it was the home of a courtroom drama that not even Television Academy Hall of Famer Dick Wolf could have written. So we're in Falaise and it's 1386. What would life possibly be like for us? Well, to put it extremely plainly, honestly, it would fucking suck. By this time, things had calmed down, like I said, a little bit in Feliz. There was still, of course, the ongoing conflict of the 100 Years' War between France and neighboring England, which was being fought constantly all around Normandy, and we were also around 30 or so years after the Black Death or Bubonic Plague had wiped out a third of the population of Europe, but this was also a time of expansion, headed rapidly towards enlightenment, with courts, lords, and communes, which are like towns or villages, creating better relationships that were more mutually beneficial to all of the parties. 
So basically on the fronts of health and war, things were a bit grim. But on the side of free thinking and the growth of ideas, we were starting to heat things up. This is part of what makes this chain of events and these types of incidents so interesting. There was way more than meets the eye going on here. But before I start to tell you what's happening under the surface, let's take a very quick break and then cover what I've been building you up to. What in the hell happened on January 9th, 1386? Hey guys, I'd like to give a special thanks to those who have supported the pod throughout our first season. Brianna Hartnett, Shelley Leffler, and my parents. I could not have done this season without your support and funding and materials, equipment, coffee, and so much more. If you'd like to join these amazing know-it-alls in supporting the pod, you can do so via the link in the episode description. Again, a huge special thanks to those who have given. I can't wait to keep providing you with quality content next season. Thanks. Well, the story actually begins a few days before January 9th at the family farm of Jeannet le Mecon. Of course, it was winter, so things were generally difficult, not to mention all of the other difficult things happening at this time. But the family was hard at work around their farm, working to ensure that when spring did come, they were prepared to turn their efforts into food for all of their aching bellies. As the older members of the family toiled away at the land, the youngest was inside the home doing his best to make himself known to the world. At a wee three months old, this loved and loud infant was alone inside of the house doing what babies do, cry. And that age-old idea to just let your baby cry it out is, well, age-old. And that's exactly what the Lemacon family was doing on this day. They were outside working and choring, and the baby was inside screaming away. So we've got a busy, distracted, and hungry family. We've got a screaming, crying, and hungry baby. And on this farm, old Lamacon also had a curious, ill-fated, and hungry sow. Out in the fields, the family is talking back and forth, digging away at the dirt, and discussing the layout for their future crops. But inside, their worst nightmare was unfolding. The human family had largely ignored the baby's squeals and screams, but not the sow. Her interest was piqued, and her belly was empty. So the pig entered the home and looked for the source of the nonstop noise. If I could guess, she maybe thought that it was a piglet screaming, but also if I had to guess, she was just intrigued by the noise. I hate to humanize her because this isn't going to be a story where she's the hero by any means, but studies have shown that pigs are actually smarter than dogs and have an intelligence level close to that of a three-year-old human. So we could probably postulate that she was being investigative at first, but then her intentions took a turn. The baby was the only thing being consistently fed on the farm, and the irritating bawling coming from the chubby little baby was enough for the pig to make a decision I'm sure she grew to regret. She bit and crushed the child's arm. Then, having realized that he wouldn't be putting up a fight, she went for his face and completely destroyed it, pulverizing the bones to bits and making the child entirely unrecognizable. The pig took the body of the boy and returned to the field that she had come from, where she continued to eat the child and then attempted to bury his remains underneath the mud. I'm not exactly sure how quickly the hungry and murderous hog was found out, but it couldn't have been long. Because if your baseline level of background noise is an infant screaming and then suddenly that just stops, you're going to notice that pretty quickly. So they found the sow and, in doing so, found the body of the baby which I'm sure was an extremely traumatizing event for the family. And they felt that something needed to be done to avenge and commemorate the tragic loss of their child. 
your mind may think that that means that they started a social movement, a la hashtag baby le Macon, or they began championing better supervision of one's children. But that would be a more modern route to take. No, no. Instead, they took the sadistic sow to town and presented her to a judge and asked that she be charged, then subsequently tried for murder. I'm completely serious. The judge thought that that made perfect sense, and so very quickly a trial was held for the animal for the judgment of her actions against the infant. In the mind of the family, this was no accident or misfortune. It was a deliberate act of violence against them. They wanted retribution, and they wanted an ending that mirrored the pain they were feeling. So thus began the trial for the sow, and before we even get into what happened in this trial, let's discuss how we even got this far. Because if you're like me, you're probably already wondering at this point why no one said to these people, uh, bonjour, oui, oui, ah, I know you lost your son, I'm so very sorry for your loss, but this is an animal, and animals are not capable of criminal intent, they only act out of instinct. We're gonna turn this one here into some nice food that can last you the rest of the winter, and in the meantime, you guys just go home, you mourn your kid, and we'll just all do our best to forget about this tragedy. That just seems like a pretty simple solution, right? Well, this is the Middle Ages, and things are anything but simple. People at this time were just rife with things that we'd probably place in the category of entirely outrageous. But at this time, those things, those oddities that they're committing every day were cool. They were chill. They were casual. They were just a part of the culture. And one aspect about this culture that I find incredibly fascinating is that these animal trials, like the one that was about to go down in Falaise, they weren't isolated or even out of the ordinary. We know of and we have evidence for more than 200 trials of animals and insects in medieval and early modern Europe, all taking place between the 13th and 17th centuries and involving pigs, dogs, horses, cows, rats, and grasshoppers. These trials largely fall into two categories secular cases against animals who have maimed or killed humans, and cases within ecclesiastical courts against vermin who may have damaged crops or grain. And a lot of effort went into making these trials fair or legitimate. And the level of seriousness that the townspeople had for these events is easy to see due to the use of defense lawyers for animals within some cases. Spoiler, our girl and Felice did not get a court-appointed attorney. But also, there's a really good Colin Firth movie. Well, I don't know that I'd call it really good. There's a Colin Firth movie that I watched. I spent some time watching. So it was good enough that I finished it. Uh, but it's called The Hour of the Pig. And it's about actually a French lawyer, who I cannot remember his name off the top of my head, that was famous for defending animals. And he was a real-life person. Um, he obviously wasn't Colin Firth, but, you know. Secular trials hinged on two ideas. The first was that animals, which were viewed as in service to the household, could be tried, convicted, and executed, just like any member of that household. The second is the Germanic concept of Weirgild, also known as the man price or blood price. This is the monetary value that a human's life carries, fluctuating based on the potential of one's future. An example for this could be that if you're young and of or before childbearing age, your life would carry a higher monetary value at this time than that of, say, an elderly person. It's extremely offensive, I know, but I didn't come up with it, so cut me some slack. 
But through this line of thinking, we're able to see that if an animal killed a child or harmed someone so badly they were forever maimed, that animal would need to be sacrificed as part of the compensation to the victim's surviving family. They just don't have a land holding or a bank account, so we're going to take their life. And on top of this was the popular Catholic-based concept of public penance, meaning that criminals needed to be doled out their punishments in public so that the community could not only participate, but also see what happens to creatures who don't value life. Sort of like uh, this is your brain on drugs with the egg, but instead it's an animal that everyone is watching fry. And again, I mean, there are no televisions and thus there were no public service announcements, so the people had to make do. (laughs) But let's go ahead and get back to the nitty gritty here. What happened when our homicidal hog homie went to trial? Well, this trial was pretty much open and shut. But before that could occur, the pig had to be properly dressed. I mean, if we're going to try it as a human, it would need to be dressed as a human. And so the sow was dressed in a jacket, breeches, and someone even tied little white gloves around her forehooves. And thus, on January 9th in her Sunday best, Miss Piggy went to trial and was found guilty of the murder of the Le Macon baby. Her punishment was right on track with the cultural eye-for-an-eye mentality, and the final statement of the court was that the animal was quote, sentenced to be mangled and maimed in the head and forelegs and then to be hanged for having torn the face and arms of a child and thus caused its death, end quote. Pretty brutal stuff. And that's pretty much what happened. After the sow was tied to a rope and drugged through the streets, which of course already placed her in really rough shape, she was then pierced in the limbs and the head by members of the court or crowd, not super clear who was doing all of this. No matter though, everyone was into the idea. And finally, even though she had probably already passed away due to being pierced in the head with the spear, the pig was hung from the gallows in the center of town. A hangman was required to complete the job, and his receipt requesting payment states that he asked for 10 sous and 10 deniers, quote, for his efforts and salary for having dragged and then hanged at the Justice and Felice, a sow of approximately three years of age, who had eaten the face of the child of Jeannette Lemecon, who was in his crib and who was approximately three months old, in such a way that the said infant died from, and tend to noose for a new glove when the hangman performed the said execution, end quote. I learned while researching this that 10 sous is the amount of money and 10 deniers is the interest rate, and seeing as this receipt has no mention of it being paid, we could speculate that 637 years after the January execution of the Sao of Felice, And after inflation, the fall of the French monarchy, the introduction of the euro, and all the math that goes with all of those events, the Felice hangman is owed a whopping 173,846 euro. Now, I am admittedly not good at math. I'm not like the worst. I can use a calculator and plug things into an equation. So I'm going to say, I guess if you want to do all the math, you can fact check me. But I feel a few things about this this number I've arrived at. One, that is not enough money for dragging a pig around, taking it out in front of an angry crowd, and hanging it. Maybe you disagree. I just, I don't think so. Two, the receipt I pulled that quote from is quite long, and even after all of this time, the man is only owed 175,000 euros. Like, that's just something, something doesn't seem correct. After 637 years, and he wrote inflation on the original contract. It, maybe I did fuck up on the math because, I mean, I don't think I did, but maybe because 
Anyway, we're losing sight of what I'm trying to say here. Is $175,000 enough? Is it enough? Was the trial and subsequent hanging of the sow enough? None of it brought the baby back, and you may be shocked to learn that the execution request was handed down by a civil court, not a criminal one. So what happened here? And how can we relate this event to the things that we see happening in our world right now? I've personally heard it said about a million times while I was working in customer service that the United States is a sue-happy country, implying that people and in most of the situations that my coworkers were at least using the phrase consumers are stupid, yet at the same time smart enough to look for any and every opportunity to take a worker or company to court and sue them for every penny that they have. But is this statement really true? Well, to start, it's not true that you can just sue anyone you want for any little thing. And there's a whole lot more to receiving payment or retribution for damages than just saying that something someone did harmed you. There's more to it than even just proving that the other person harmed you. You've got to prove who holds the legal responsibility and who's liable for the harm that's happened. Then, just like the man, Price, and police, you've got to determine what the monetary value of this event was. So you may be able to see how, with all these barriers and bumps along the way of reaching the courtroom, it's simply just, it's just simply not truthful to call the United States a litigious society. I mean, when it comes to medical malpractice or mistakes, only 17% of seriously injured patients choose to sue. And when civil cases do make it to court, fewer than 25% of them are decided in favor of the plaintiff or the person who states that they were harmed. Now, you may not know this, but I used to work for Starbucks. Shout out to all my Starbucks homies out there. Once you sell your soul to the siren, you are forever bonded. But in my time working at Starbucks, I heard a few things over and over again. One, of course, was that all the customers were looking to sue us for any little thing. Lack of a wet floor sign, coffee that was too hot, sandwiches that were out of date, cross-contamination, you freaking name it. But I also heard this overwhelming and nonstop mantra to create the customer experience. Or you could say it in the classic way of, the customer is always right. Well, this style of thinking, as I'm sure you could guess, leads to some really ridiculous requests from customers. And one of the most common of these requests is that people want their coffee, or their lattes, I'm sorry, to be served at temperatures that would rival the jacuzzis in hell. Literally, people have looked me straight-faced through the order box and ordered a latte that they plan on drinking while they're driving a moving vehicle at 70 miles per hour, they want that motherfucker at 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Like literally babes, they're asking for coffee that's 12 degrees below boiling. That's literally, that's fucked in the head, isn't it? Like what the, what the actual fuck? But, of course, I never gave it to them. Due in part because Starbucks machines only go to 170 degrees, but also due in part because I don't want to burn someone's entire body. And the machines stop at 170 degrees because of a case that I think most people know about, or at least they know the pop culture version of. And that is Liebeck versus McDonald's, or the McDonald's coffee case. Now, I'm not going to cover all of the details of the Liebeck case, but I'm going to go over the facts very quickly so that if you aren't familiar, you can learn the truth. And if you are familiar, well, you can also learn the truth because I'm sure you've got some things in mind that maybe aren't accurate. 
The incident in question happened in February of 1992 when Stella Liebeck visited a drive-thru of a McDonald's in Albuquerque, New Mexico with her nephew in his car, which didn't have cup holders. They went through the drive-thru and Miss Liebeck ordered a cup of coffee. Not a very big cup, might I add. I think it was like 49 cents or something. Her nephew then parked the car so she could add sugar and cream to the cup. Stella placed the cup between her knees and removed the lid by pulling the far side toward her. The entire cup of coffee spilled on her lap while she was doing this, and since she was wearing cotton sweatpants that absorbed the coffee and held it against her skin, Miss Liebeck was badly burned on her thighs, her butt, and her groin. She immediately went into shock and was taken to the emergency room where they discovered that she had suffered third-degree burns on 6% of her body, with lesser burns over 16% of her body. And while in the hospital for eight days, Stella lost 20% of her body weight. She was permanently disfigured, and she was partially disabled for two years. When they went to court in 1994, Stella's attorneys argued that at 180 to 190 degrees Fahrenheit, McDonald's coffee was defective, and it was more likely to cause serious injury than coffee that was served at any other establishment. Furthermore, documents that were obtained from McDonald's showed that from 1982 to 1992, the company had received more than 700 reports of people being burned by McDonald's coffee to varying degrees, and they had settled claims arising from scalding injuries for more than $500,000. Yet, when Stella had originally tried to get them to pay her $20,000 bill for the hospital, they refused, which is why in the end they ended up in the courtroom. The jury found that McDonald's was 80% responsible for the incident and the amount that the parties settled for was decided in a confidential agreement. So you're probably asking, why am I talking about this case in an episode about the Sao of Police? Well, dear know-it-all, because I find these stories to be two sides of the same litigious coin. In Feliz, the community banded together to get retribution for the Lemecon family and help, for lack of a better word, help show other pigs that if they misbehave, they too will get sent to the gallows. On the other hand, the McDonald's coffee case became this long-standing cultural story of how consumers are wrong and how someone who was being careless was awarded for doing something that caused them harm. But in both of these cases, the person who suffered, Stella, the family of Jeanne Le Mecon, the baby, and even the sow, were just doing normal, everyday life stuff when suddenly life, instinct, circumstance whatever collided in the most perfect storm to create a situation that changed or ended a life. When we hear a brief mentioning of a sow that was hung in medieval France for killing a baby, or an old woman who dumped coffee on herself so now all the coffee cups say caution, contents hot, it's easy and almost human nature to jump to a quick conclusion about what happened and trying to decide the how or why behind what took place. But if we were in those moments, it could have just as quickly happened to us. And what lengths would we go to in order to make ourselves feel whole again, to make up for the emotional damage that we suffered, or even to prevent other people from suffering the same fate? I know that I'd personally go pretty far to defend and avenge the people that I love, and none of them have been mutilated by a hungry hog. Being disabled is the only minority group that you can be put into at any moment, no matter your age, socioeconomic status, education, race, any of it. At any moment, something could happen that derails your life and experience as you know it. So we should all try our best to not judge people dealing with these incidents. 
And I think that's the similarity between these two stories. Their outrageousness makes our lizard brain think that they're somewhat easy to process or that there should be a simple A plus B equals C answer to them. When in reality, they're these complex webs of circumstance and timing and all these things that that any one of us could be walking towards at any moment. We could be balancing above one of these nets, one of these webs, just waiting to fall into it, and we have no idea. So the next time that you drink from a cup that says, caution, content's hot, or some version of the phrase, I hope that you'll think of Stella and the Sao Feliz and just how close we are to the edge of a world we completely don't know. So, concretely, what can we take away here? Well, I think that there's two big things. And that's going to be, number one, animals, they be animaling. We cannot control them. This is something, it's kind of silly, but my therapist said it to me once about my dog whenever I had first gotten her and I was getting frustrated because I felt like I was being too angry towards her, which is just such a me thing to feel that I'm too angry at my dog. But she told me that animals don't process emotion in the same ways that we do, right? They don't have long thought out schemes or plans or they don't think about, yeah, you know, this person did this and so next time I see them around, I'm going to do this. They act out of instinct, right? They just do what animals do. And we're actually in a really interesting time right now because while we've always had these complex complementary relationships with animals, whether those are cats, dogs, monkeys, you name it, we've got this angry pod of orcas off the coast of Portugal where basically since 2020, all of these orcas or killer whales have been hitting boats and sometimes sinking them, swarming the vessels, and it seems like they taught their aggressive behavior to each other. They think that there was this one orca who was harmed by a boat and now she's just developed this instinctual fear or aggression towards them and she's taught all of her all of her calves, she's taught all of her friends and so now there's just literally an army of orcas that want to eat the rich. And A, I want to do that too. And I'd love to ride an orca into battle against Elon Musk. But also, they're not planning a war against yachts. They're just learning and seeing yachts and then being like, I'm going to fucking hit that boat. Just like how this sow was hungry, saw something that looked plump and juicy, probably looked like a little peach to her, and went for it. Like, (laughs) I'm even a vegan, and I believe wholeheartedly that animals have complex emotions and feelings, but I don't think that an animal can act with criminal intent. That's just that's just not a thing. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and do a whole episode on the Sour Falez and not talk about these orcas because if I see an orca on trial sometime in twenty twenty three, I'm throwing in the towel. I'm going to the CDC, snagging a vial of bubonic plague, and that's it for me because we're right back in thirteen eighty six and I can't survive it. So just wipe me out. Take me out. <laughs> but so I think this is a, the best time to say number two. Life is chaotic, so don't forget the seven Ps. Proper prior planning prevents piss-poor performance. I.e., plan for the worst and you're going to be better off in the long run. 
If you're a company, I guess that means make coffee that isn't wildly hot and listen to your customers' complaints. If you're a person, that means to live life to the fullest and plan for things to not go to plan. That way, when they don't, you know what your next move is. Take it all in. Live life every day, every moment, to the fullest and highest degree. Time waits for no one, and you don't want to look back at some point in your life and think, wow, I had it so good then. Why didn't I appreciate it? Appreciate it now. Appreciate it now. Remember that proper prior planning prevents piss poor performance, and you can appreciate your life right now by planning to look back and think, wow, this was so much better than I thought it was. Because that's always our perspective, isn't it? We always look back and go, oh my God, things were so good. Things were so great. When in reality, we were at each other's throats or things were actually awful or this, that, or what have you. Um, I'm sure that, again, talking about the Sauvales, I'm sure that that family thought, you know, oh my God, finally the baby stopped crying. Only to find out that the baby had actually been destroyed and was in the field. Um, I gotta stop thinking about that. Give me a second, guys. <laughs> Y'all, I cannot, 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 cannot. I know I've said it in the past, like, I think two or three episodes. I cannot believe that this is it. This is the finale. We made it back to France. We spent a fuck ton of time in Montana. Holy shit. I mean, I think, I think we had five episodes where we were in Montana, which, like, I'm not mad about it. But that's a whole 25%. Like, that's more than... That's higher than the number of civil cases where the plaintiff is found to not be liable. That's that's saying something. But we did it. We've made it through a season. I thank you if you've been here the entire time. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. I appreciate you immensely. I am not going to get into the details of our metrics because I don't really care about what our metrics look like aside from the fact that I have a consistent number of people showing up each week. Um, anything beyond that is exciting. But, you know, things obviously, they really, they're, they're, they're taller. Your numbers are bigger whenever you start out. And then things kind of fall off as, you know, of course, people decide if they like it or not, if it's for them. Um, so if you've been here for a long time, go ahead. Give yourself a little round of applause. Give yourself a pat on the back. I am so proud to have you here. I'm so excited. If this is your first episode, well, I am sorry because there won't be a new episode for you next week, but I'm also not sorry because there are 19 other episodes for you to go and listen to. And holy shit, there are 19 other episodes to go and listen to. That is just, good God, mind-blowing to me. I don't know if you guys remember, but way back in the trailer, which has now been archived because it was just the audio quality was so bad, but way back in the trailer, I talked about how content creation has always been a dream of mine. Making something to connect with an audience and connect on my love of learning has always been a dream of mine. So thank you for supporting my dream by listening to me talk every week. Thank you for making the little girl in me proud because I'm proud of myself and I've never, ever been proud of myself before. So you guys did that. We did that. Thank you. So I will be back in three weeks on July 19th 
to drop the first episode of our second season. I am so, so, so excited. I, in the meantime, will be posting some old memes that I have saved for Instagram, as well as some old content that I didn't make, but I just have gathered, and that relates to our old stuff, our old episodes. I will do my best to be present on stories and stuff over on Instagram next week and, you know, the next couple days. But to be completely honest with you, I'm going to camp and I'm going to be busy shaping the minds of America's youths. So can't can't make any promises. I'm going to recommend to you for our summer break, for our little brief summer vacation to go out there and get curious. I want you to visit your local museums. I want you to, if you've never looked it up before, I want you to look up if there's a museum in your town. You'd probably be shocked. I grew up in a town of less than a thousand people and we had a museum. Um, I only went there a couple times, but hey, I went. So get out there, download. There's an app that you can get on iPhone. I'm sure it's on Android called iNaturalist that you can use to identify different varieties of plants and things out in the world. So get outside, get curious, crack a book. You know, if it's been a month, two months, three months, six months, a year, two years, three years, six years since you read a book, since you stepped outside of your comfort zone in that way, do it. Why not? What's stopping you? Tomorrow, you could lose your ability to have sight. You could lose your ability to read as you know it. Why not? Once again, happy, happy pride. I am so proud of the episode we put out last week. I'm so proud of myself for putting myself out there in that way. Again, little me would just be so happy to know that I have a family and a community of people that love me and want to cheer me on no matter who I'm attracted to. (sighs) Anyway, Before I start crying about last week's episode and the fact that I'm closing out the season, let's go ahead and cut it off, guys. I love you guys so, so, so much. Please just keep being you. Keep going. I hope you'll join me in three weeks for the next season of the pod or on a backlogged episode in the pursuit to know a little bit about everything. In the meantime, please like, share, comment on the Instagram post I'm going to have up. Shoot me an email. The pod has an email. It's at knowitall.pod at gmail if you want to send us something. Um, But most of all, stay safe out there. Until next time, thanks.